Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Thank you for that, Jim. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. And this week, we have a special. This is going to be with a Richard King, the author, who's done several books. Um, but this is an interview I did with him a few years ago when he just brought out on paperback. How soon is now? Subtitled, The Mad Men and Mavericks Who Made Independent Music from 1975 to 2005. Yes, I got the dates right. And it came out on Faber and Faber and now is on in paperback, available from all good bookshops. So I've got that interview that I'm going to um, lay on you. No, perhaps I won't. But uh, I'll just play instead. But before we have the interview, I think we'll play a bit of music just to get the party rolling. And then the first part and the only part of some quality chat. But this is going to be, I know, this is going to be really predictable, isn't it? This is The Smiths and the track titled How Soon Is Now. So you go and you stand on your own And 
And that is The Smiths with a track titled How Soon Is Now. That came from either, what well, was from Hatful of Hollow, so it's probably a John Peel session, or was it Kid Jensen? I don't know. I should have done the research, but um, never mind. And let's face it, who cares? Now, this is going to be the interview that I had with Richard King, the author of a book titled How Soon Is Now. I know, brilliant link. Uh, the Mad Men and Mavericks who made independent music from 1975 to 2005. Out on paperback, uh, Faber and Faber, available from all good bookshops. Buy it because it will change your life. But um, after um, some sort of chat with Richard, I then was talking about the C86 world and uh, the fact that his book actually went way back from the sort of normal indie world, which is the 80s onwards, and right into the mid-70s. And uh, after making that fascinating point, Richard then replied, and this was it, and this is going to be the interview. Richard, take it away. Yes, I thought it was important to... Um, it's interesting, because I think one of the things about C86 was um, people were sort of quite eager to celebrate the 10th anniversary of punk, and independent music and DIY music, um, although very little of it sounded like punk, I think people saw a lot of the ethos of punk in what became known as C86. Um, and I started the book before punk because I wanted to sort of set up uh, an environment in which independent music could flourish, not only because of punk, but because of people like Andrew Lauder who'd released things like Noi and Can, and ended up signing the Buzzcocks immediately after Spiral Scratch. So, you know, we're, we're used to quite neat lines in, in the narrative about music, I think, you know, begin, you know, years, we like year zeros, and I thought it was important to kind of um, set up a context that, you know, explained that it wasn't just a single year zero of punk, there were things that had happened before. Yes, and but when with people who weren't necessarily looked upon as being punk themselves, really. Um, no, I mean, they were probably, you know, the music that punks listened to, definitely. I mean, John Lydon famously on the Capital Radio programme played um, Van de Graaff Generator and some dub and Captain Beefheart, and I think he played Can or Noi, I can't remember, but... Um, you know, it, it, it wasn't as if people weren't listening to anything when they decided to become punks overnight. And in the case of some of the people um, <clears throat> who Andrew Lord assigned to United Artists, like uh, the Buzzcocks and the Stranglers, you know, those people who certainly um, knew their way around record collections from the early 70s, they hadn't had a sort of Damascene conversion. No. Uh, which, which is, you know, what tends to be proposed, but I don't think is is accurate. No, I, I think, I mean, yes, because suddenly, I don't know, this month, which is November, if it, whenever this yeah. comes out, but I mean, you know, there's about four different events about sort of celebrating Punk's 40th anniversary, which is like, oh, was it, was it 77? <laughs> you know, it, it, was, it was like, I think I people, know. people are getting a bit desperate for this at the moment. Yes, it's like Michael Gove in the First World War, isn't it? It's got to be four years' worth of remembrance. It can't just be 1914 and 1918. It has to go on for four years. So I'm looking forward to next year when... Um, the sort of Michael Govian view of patriotism will be put on a shelf for a while, all being well. <laughs> but obviously, one of the people who who was a huge influence behind all this, and the person yep. that often everyone always mentions, is dear old John Peel, because he was the person yes. who seemed to sort of 
pick up all these kind of odd little things? Because obviously, I mean, one, yes. of, one of the bands that you mentioned there, and I, well, actually several, I know people, I don't, sometimes I wonder if they really did like it or whether they think they should say it, but, you know, it is Captain Beef, Heart Velvet, Underground, The Stooges, yes. Yes. and obviously all the crack rock stuff as well. And yes. or, and just just in case, Augustus Pablo, and um, and off they go. So yeah. so it's quite yeah. interesting, but, but it was John Peel that seemed to be the one who had his finger Definitely. on that zeitgeist. guys. Yes, I think he sort of operated, um, you know, um, I think a lot of the music in the late 60s and early 70s flourished in the UK because of the sort of institutionalised bohemia of the art school. And by the late 70s, early 80s, that wasn't, it was still in existence, but it wasn't quite as ripe or as easy to access or perhaps it had kind of become a little diluted and someone like John Peel, his radio show um, you know, a John Peel session was a sort of form of an Arts Council subsidy for, for a lot of bands in the 80s who were signed to independent labels that were run out of people's bedrooms, you know, which had no marketing budget and very little recording budget. So something like a John Peel session was a huge impact in a sort of micro career that these people had. And if they if they had a John Peel session and a single of the week in the music papers, then, you know, they probably extended what they would probably call their anti-career, but their career nevertheless by another six months. Yes. So he really had the role of he really had that kind of um bbc Reesian role if you like um and and he 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 was definitely the only person at the time who kind of i think understood this because he was you know above all a real really 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 deeply bbc person john peel and i think he really enjoyed that role he also not many people know this but one of the reasons he flourished for so long and survived for so long was because he always had the youngest audience figures in terms of the people who listened to him so radio one's remit was to to be listened to by the youth of the country and his show always attracted the youngest audience figures so people he had the most 14 to 18 year olds listening to him far more than people in the daytime obviously where it was broadcasting the workplace quite often but the fact he continually had a young audience meant he was allowed to continue and you know in some ways shaped their tastes and i think he he took that really really seriously and by the sort of c86 period he was he was playing music by bands who'd kind of grown up listening to him and i think he you know i don't think he ever really wanted to be seen as a oh you know as a particularly avuncular figure but he definitely um enjoyed the fact that there was a kind of two-way conversation between his listeners and him to the point where people who'd grown up listening to him were starting bands and he was giving them sessions and that kind of thing. Yes, because obviously, because your book starts in 75, and I sort of recently looked at, recently read that book called Goodnight and Good Riddance, just about John Peel, and it was quite interesting because it was going through his whole career and picking out sort of certain sessions and certain programmes throughout throughout all those decades. And actually, you could tell by that mid-70s period that... um, 
things were, were just kind of almost down a cul-de-sac of kind of greyness and, and nothing particularly happening. And, and, you know, you had the Bowie and then you had a bit, you know, he even went through all those, a few of those prog rock bands and the Canterbury scene. But by 75, there was very little that was really happening that, that was that exciting, apart from it was all going to be regurgitated again for the rest of the 70s until, I suppose, the Ramones came along. Yes, but I don't, I don't think, um, you know, I think... He did play a lot of things like um, La Dusseldorf and Neu and Faust, and I don't think you can underestimate things like Henry Cow and the things Virgin were putting out at the time. Um, uh, they were quite, you know, and, and people like, um, you know, Bridget St. John, there was some folk music he liked, and Kevin Coyne, you know, he gave many, many sessions yes. to, and, and Vivian Stanshaw forever. I mean, obviously, it's not... You know, as, as terms of music goes, particularly the British music, it does sound like the the soundtrack to the three day week, um, and and the soundtrack to the winter of discontent. It's quite. It's not. Um, it's fairly um, self absorbed yes. music. It's not. It's not. You know. It's not. It's not. Ex- <laughs> it is exciting, but it's not got much energy to it. I suppose is a way of defining it. But. Um, uh, you know, I think I, I don't think you can underestimate how popular a lot of that music was with his listenership, and certainly someone like The Fall, who obviously was so totemic in terms of John Peel's career, were really into all that music. You know. Yes, absolutely. So also, so fast forward into the, the to the sure. to the eighties a bit. I mean, because what I've noticed interviewing most of the bands is they have basically a four to five year lifespan which is kind of they yeah they get together they make a bit of a noise and often you know there was that government scheme wasn't there the enterprise alliance scheme which kind of helped yeah. a lot of people to to, yeah. f- to live for one year and pretend to be musicians and some of them became <laughs> musicians bizarrely and and they sort of made a noise often because you know b- bands like bog shared big flame i mean they couldn't play their instruments so they couldn't really sort of replicate sort of you know eric clapton and layla so they made the, the no. sound and then they did the john peel you know they got played on john peel possibly did the session did the album bit of a tour and then what i've noticed is that second album is is and then the kind of admin and legality is is the thing that seemed to kill most of those bands off yes that's a very good way of putting it i think um i think you know most of those bands probably only had one record in them um to start with and by the time you've passed that moment of releasing a debut album and you're thinking about what to do next um you've probably exhausted your audience in terms of whether it can grow or not. And you've probably exhausted your ideas because these were, you know, these were, you know, particularly the kind of big flame, (coughs) excuse me, bog shed. I mean, they could kind of play in a way, but it was, you know, it's very much kind of, um, uh, I think it's so synonymous with the times, with, with, with what was happening in the charts and the sort of, Thatcherite idea of you know the enterprise allowance as you say the, and you know the, it, it's the real underbelly of the kind of eighties um, aspirational dream that music it, and it sounds like it it sounds like it's made by people on the dole who who've kind of rejected um, that settlement and you know many of those bands played uh, minor strikes benefits for example yes. so mm-hmm. there was a kind of and and at the time the music press was far more political as well. Um, you know, I think you could definitely say that something like the enemy aligned itself against the government of the time. Mm. Um, and um, that music 
sort of was useful, I think, in, in occupying a space where people could feel that they were the they were anti what what was considered the mainstream. And I think a lot of the people involved in manufacturing it, distributing it, um, you know, rough trade distribution in particular, used to have a big bucket on their reception for for the miners' strike or for CND. And of course, at the time, Glastonbury had a big CND sign at the top of the pyramid stage. So. You know, I'd, musically, some of the more sort of, you know, the less 60s-inspired end of C86, musically, it, it is sort of B-Faust-orientated, things like Stump and Bogshed and Big Flame. But it, it's, I don't think it's... Um, it's not music you necessarily want to put on <laughs> that often, uh, but it's kind of it's a funniness and it's sort of awkwardness really fitted with a lot of the social energy of the time. Well, I suppose there was two things in, in that that I was thinking about, was that um, at the time, you know, you either had Top of the Pops and everybody on that looked pretty happy yeah. and, and were living the dream, which was, yeah. you know, for a lot of people, they weren't able to relate to it. So obviously that Trevor, sure. that Trevor Horn sound, uh, even though that was on the ZTT records, which was probably independent, but but there was that kind of image. They were signed to Ireland, actually, they weren't. But were they? They bogged down and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought I, I could bore you Richard with that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. good. I know, I like those sort of details, actually. It's, <coughs> it's sort of amusing. Me. But yes, you had that, but then but then in the other part, you know, so you had that sort of, you know, the wham, the spandle bally, the round around, and yeah. that Tina Turner, and all that kind of, wow, that's amazing, we live in the dream. And then most of the people were, yeah. weren't able to relate to it, and obviously that's where the Smiths and their lyrics from Morrissey were sure. so brilliant. Sure. But then the other thing was that tribalness, which no one well, unless you were there, can really relate to, was that 80s period was kind of, you know, there there was kind of Red Wedge and there was the SWPs yeah. and, there, and there was kind of the whole Thatcher thing and the miners' strike and Scargill and, and all these characters, as well as kind of the artist against, you know, South Africa as well. So, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. you know, which, which was kind of all boiling away. And, and so anything on an independent label in my brain during the 80s was, was generally regarded as good, apart from Stockhead and Waterman, which just was kind <laughs> yeah. of a bit confusing. Um, and anything yeah. on a major was kind of bad. And it was, it, was a, it was something that was in one's kind of DNA and you know, system until people like Sonic Youth kind of decided to sign for a major, which, which made headlines in the NME probably. You know. um, it, it did. I mean, I think, um, I think that's absolutely the case at the time in the 80s it was very much a kind of which side are you on aesthetic decision people made and someone like Alan McGee um you know aligned himself with that um yeah up to a point and I think for some for someone like him someone like New Labour was a great kind of um well as it was for many people it was a great kind of fix to that kind of dilemma that you know you wanted to actually um you know do well financially and, and actually um succeed on, on, on very strong terms, but you wanted to kind of retain some sort of integrity. Um, I think I think that kind of drift towards majors, sellouts, etc. happened probably before Sonic Youth. I mean, there was such a fuss when the Smith signed to EMI. Um, and, you know, things like the Smiths not wanting to make videos i was speaking to someone the other day who's my age who's very much coming from the sort of smash hits angle and you know is desperately trying to understand why people cared about the smiths suddenly making videos or signing to emi and why did it matter but you know 
I think you've articulated why it did matter to lots of people. And looking back, it does seem sort of um, fairly ridiculous. I mean, it's <laughs> does, you know, <laughs> making a video. But, um, you know, it, 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 of course, history in hindsight, we always look back and see absurdity in everything. But, but the, the, those positions are really well defined. And um, major labels were, were pretty hopeless in the 80s. In, in in the UK in particular. I mean, in America, America is such a large country that um, it's really hard to actually get your records across the country, you know, just across the territory without engaging in some sort of um, organ- you know, big organisation, just it's physically impossible. But in the UK, there was the cartel, and uh, the UK also had, a you know, three or four weekly music press and radio which america didn't have so you know it's just very very volatile environment very lively environment and as you say it's easy to kind of have a sort of almost career for a year and a half or three years if you were kind of at the um if you lived in the um independent charts and the john peel show and and um you know tended to go to concerts arranged in in pubs rather than theaters yes but um (laughs) <laughs> part of that volatility means people get very um you know, have strong opinions about things like making videos and signing to EMI and that kind of thing. Yeah. And obviously there was also lots of kind of quirkiness that happened during those labels and artists and one of them was Alan Horn from Postcard. Yeah. I mean what happens to some of these people because I've never sort of tracked yeah. down Alan Horn. And, well, um, Alan 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 decided he didn't want to um uh, he kind of he sort of relaunched Postcard in the mid '90s with not too much success. Probably the timing was off. Uh, when you think that you know seven years later, someone like Franz Ferdinand came along, um, and it, you know these things are nearly always about timing. But Alan, um, I think, just uh, just just would rather forget about it. I mean that truculence he presented as a as a front wasn't uh as he presented to the world wasn't a front you know he was a i think and still is a fairly truculent person and um ironically i think well in the early days of the edwin collins orange juice forum i don't know if it still exists but there was one for a while um when forums were popular and um someone joined it called alan horn who wasn't that alan horn he's a different alan horn and i think he found out Thing quite, quite trying because uh, lots of people sort of started bombarding him with questions. Yes, absolutely. But, actually, um, no. I mean, some people can't. You know, I mean, even some like Tony Wilson. You know, didn't he? You know, his career was in tele. It was in regional television after after 1992. Really, you know, and it's very hard um, to keep going. Really, Jeff Travis is probably the only person who's seen it through and has had that sort of degree of longevity and there's certainly been ups and downs for him. And, um, yeah, Alan, Alan just sort of retired really. And, uh, Bob, Bob last from fast product got involved in films and in things like, um, the arts council or creative industries agencies in Scotland and that kind of thing. So, um, I think there was a sense from the beginning that these things, these labels weren't necessarily built to last. No. Well, it was interesting because actually I realised that it did make me re- realise that um, having interviewed so many but these bands, that actually the bands that do just continue 
there, there's just yeah. such a small a small minority and and I almost kind of had an appreciation thing god yes you had to go through management you had to go through record labels you had to do that American tour which is often another thing that people say if you went you know America often finishes most bands yeah yeah um and and just we, kind have, to, we have to work quite hard in America yes and I think you know people you don't just, have to in this country People just get very exhausted and tired and things get a bit messy yeah. and, and that's quite tricky. And then, you know, there is the, you know, I think with most people after that five years, they're just like, yeah. they still have no money in their bank account and just feel like, I can't do this anymore. I need to have a break. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, it makes me appreciate the bands who just did say, actually, we're just going to keep doing it, what, whatever. And that's, that's people like, you know, Lemmy from Motorhead. I know he's dead now, but, you know, yeah, yeah. you know the Lemmys, the Bowies, you know, and even, you know, the guy, David Gedge from Wedding Present, you know. You know yeah, they, well, I mean, Primal Scream is still going, and they're probably the only band on the C86 cassette that are still actually releasing records and touring, I'd have thought. I can't think of many others. Yeah, well, I think um, most, most have had a break apart from them, probably. Yes, and, um, um, well, I think... Um, there was a period when, you know, people like uh, the Flatmates and the Mighty Lemon Drops and some of the people who really kind of were at the hardcore John Peel independent charts end of this sort of music, but were part of that C86 culture. Um, they signed to a label run by Jeff Travis and Mayo Thompson that was financed by Seymour Stein, I think, called Blue Guitar. And they, you know, that was a major label budget. Not a very big one, but a, a major label budget. And they got to make albums in decent studios and had a chance of going to America. And I think, you know, somewhere like the Mighty Lemon Drops is sort of slightly mind-boggling now, but I think they managed to do sort of three American tours in one year, or at least two. And, you know, some of these bands were off, were given that opportunity. Yes. But... In this country, you can play Glasgow, Manchester, Liverpool, London, Brighton, maybe Bristol and Sheffield, and that's a kind of that's a tour, you know, that's a national tour, <laughs> and uh, you know, if you, it doesn't really work like that overseas. And you know, whether one likes it or not, the things that kind of make a career in music are hits, you know, even if that's kind of indie hits, it's hits are what gives you a career. You know, yeah. you have to be successful and popular and you can be you know someone like felt was successful and popular with um with some of their records and primitive painters you know if it had a better video or they'd had someone working for them who knew how to get it on the nascent mtv and if they'd wanted to could have kind of turned or if they'd had a manager could have turned that into the sort of success someone like the smiths or new order had you know yes. but all all those bigger bands all had american money behind them and um you know people like new order and and not all of the smiths but some of the smiths and heck and the bunnymen and the sugar cubes and other bands all went over to america and, and gave american rock stars a run for their money and their behavior you know um but they were all really really big in america for a while those bands yes. Well, it's interesting that um, that Brendan from the the the, the Killers, you know, he, he he cites all these British indie bands from the eighties as his musical yeah. influence. So I think that that's quite yeah. amazing. But what you were saying actually yeah. was quite interesting. Talking to, I think it was Paul from the Primitives, and yeah. uh, and asking why it finished. And he said, "Well, no one was interested anymore. You know, the, no. the, we weren't no. getting any press." No one was coming to our gigs, and I was thinking, yeah, but when you did Crash, I remember that was huge. You know, it really was yeah. 
a massive hit. And you were stars not only on the indie scene, but on the sort of mainstream scene for a while. And it sort of, it also made me realise, you know, when you were mentioning people like New Order, the one band that, yep. that I'm still boggled with is Depeche Mode, because yep. cause I, I realise the problem is it's not just getting the press, it's actually having the fans who aren't just going to say, actually, we're a bit bored now. And, and so having that, that loyalty is huge, really. It is huge. And someone like The Primitives, you know, they had a hit, but it was a radio hit, and people thought, this is a nice song, I like the sound of it, it's sort of jangly melodic, I'll buy it. But that's not a career, you know. Yeah. I mean, they still get, if it's played on the radio, they still get an income from it, talking about it in its sort of basis terms. But um, it's... Um, the other thing is, a band like that were popular for two years in a kind of music press way and the music press would probably put them on the cover for their next record that wasn't going to do so well and then six months later someone like the stone roses comes along and that that's just you know as i said it's so volatile and or we used to be so volatile in this country with that music press culture that you just get dropped straight away for the next thing you know and it was just a hype and um you know careers got got cancelled quite quickly in that way Yes, absolutely. Well, look, Richard, God, actually, I do think your book is amazing, by the way. I just <laughs> really, really, I really know it was like, yeah. God. And did you sort of see that Neil Taylor, who did that original C86, well, he compiled yeah. it. Um, he's got his book launched this week, apparently. So, um, As he know, I didn't know that, no. Yeah. If you liked John Peel, I write about him quite, meeting him and sort of half knowing him in my next book, Original Rockers. Um if you're interested in John Peel. Oh my God, I'm obsessed with John Peel. You know, okay, um, yeah. Because I, I you know, chap. it was quite interesting. There's a chap from him in in the in, uh, the in the book I wrote after that one. Oh well, I'll be. When's that coming? <coughs> Excuse me. Is that next yeah. year? Uh, no, it's out. Ridge Rockers came out in paperback last year. Oh, did it? Is that on Faber? Yeah. yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I must try and no. I was John Peel was as as important. As, right. as the music to me, you know, he was absolutely yeah, incredible. Yeah. And, you know, and, yeah. and even his chat between the songs were almost more memorable yeah. than some of the music he played. So I was... Oh, bit, I should think so, yeah. I was, yeah. I was, you know, I used to sort of have, a, you know, and I still do have, have my cuttings that I used to always take out and have in a folder of John Peel, David Bowie and the Smiths. So, <laughs> God, um, <okay>. <laughs> <laughs> so he was, you. you know, he was just one of those characters that, you know, I must admit... Yeah. I, I just, I've yeah. never, I mean, when he died, I, I, I've never managed to replace him. You know, he, it's been... No, a no, he, he served that role for many, many people, I think. And, yeah. Uh, he cared, he cared about the people who listened to him. He really did. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I, I realised that, you know, he was the one who introduced me to the Bundy Boys and... And, and, yes, and, yeah. Roxanne, Roxanne, Shantae, and all those kind of rappers, both yeah. women and men. And well, hip hop, he gave up on hip hop after a while. Actually. Yeah, well, so did um, I, because it became gangster yeah. rap, which was a bit. He gave up then, yes. And he and never a... gave up on reggae or ragga or techno no. or African music, but I think he had enough of people calling each other. Yes, mofos and similar. I know it was it was, <laughs> it was just too much, and I I sort of must admit I I loved the early rap years, but then when NWA came along, and I think yes. well, I'm just a white kid I'm in Britain. I can't relate to you know shooting no. someone. So no, but they wanted your money. They wanted my money, but um, <laughs> but I, I I suppose but interesting. I did go to that event, which I suppose it was kind of. Well, I thought it was influenced by John Peel, but he, I don't know if he went. Yeah. Oh, that was in 85. That was kind of the UK Fresh event that took place at Wembley, and it had people like African Bomb Barter and Grandmaster Flash. I remember, yes. 
and yeah, yeah. Um, yeah sort of I went along because he used to just kind of find all those kind of interesting singles and obviously that was the problem well not a problem but that was one that I realised that the singles of most of those bands were brilliant and I'd go and get the album and it was absolutely appalling bit of a stretch yeah no you're far better off with the Street Sounds compilation yes old Morgan Kahn um, yeah, yeah so so they were brilliant and but occasionally I thought oh if this artist has got this single the rest of their album will be great and I realised yeah, then yeah. that's when I realised John Pill had really done his work and went no this is the best song the rest are terrible really terrible you know and the Street Sounds compilations were fantastic you know so I don't think you can underestimate the effect John Walters had as his producer either no um, you know Obviously, John carried it all, and um, it was down to his personality. But in terms of the kind of legwork and research, and uh, certainly as a kind of um, baffle between him and the rest of the BBC, he was he was very, very, very important. Yeah. Well, I realised there was like I, I did sort of interview Fast Eddie recently because I also do. Yeah. And he was just saying because they did a John Peel show, and he said, "I don't know why, we, you know, how we got it, but we did." And I'm, I'm sure it's more people like the John Walters or, or other people who probably encouraged. It was mainly him. John Walters. He'd just go and see. He'd go out every night, and John Peel would go back to his family. Yes. Um, or you know, occasionally go out for curries with people, but John Walters would would go out three nights a week to watch bands, and John Peel did go out as well. But John Walters really did an awful lot of legwork in that way. Yes. Oh, that's nice. You met him as well. Yes, yes. No, he invited to his house and everything, but uh, for some stupid reason didn't go. But yes, I wrote about it at length in my in the book I wrote after How Soon Is Now. Indeed. Now, I'm going to leave it there. That is it. That's the interview I had with Richard King, who was talking about How Soon Is Now. And as I said at the beginning, I'm sure, you, I'm sure you're still fascinated, subtitled The Mad Men and Mavericks Who Made Independent Music 1975 to 2005. And that is on Faber and Faber. And I know that uh, Richard has brought out several books since then, as he sort of mentioned. But um, earlier this year, he did The Lark Ascending. So do, um, yes, go and track it down and buy it. Anyway, this has been David Esau. This has been The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, that now sounds a little bit desperate, but you can, you can do on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just go to at C86 Show. And also all these have uh, programs have been archived, so you can find them on Podbean, Mixcloud, Spotify, iTunes, the magic for. Anyway, I'll leave you with another track and um, say goodbye. That's it. Have a great week.
Yeah. 